Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. I thought on today's podcast I'd talk a little bit about uh, news from the Walt Disney Company and around Walt Disney World and Disneyland because there's a lot of things happening, a lot of moving parts as we've talked about before. Given the way COVID is working and you know some of the things that are happening, we, you know, everyone needs to proceed with caution. So I'm going to start out at Disneyland, and the story goes the state of California still hasn't given Disneyland, SeaWorld, all the other attractions and so forth, uh, the ability to open yet. So they can't, uh, they can't actually reopen. Now, there was some discussion a week or so ago that uh, Disneyland and SeaWorld had pushed back on the state, don't give us a reopening date yet, don't put a, put a plan out there. And the reason had to do with a nuanced sort of response that the, the opening plan that the state was going to provide may not have been detailed enough to help them to understand how they could open. So they wanted a little more detail around it before they could actually put their plans together. So it seemed kind of odd that they were saying, hey, don't tell us to reopen. But it was really more nuanced around, hey, if you're going to tell us to reopen, give us some parameters, tell us something. And this is the bigger problem here is that there's no real guidance coming down from anywhere. It's just sort of, let's figure this out on our own, which makes this kind of an interesting problem that Disney has that they have to deal with. So Disneyland still hasn't reopened. It's been a very long time there now. Uh, Let's see, I think Disney World reopened on July, I believe it was July 11th was the actual date that they reopened. So, um, you know, it's been another almost 70 days uh, since then. So that's about 180 days. It's six months that they've been closed, roughly. So kind of interesting how it's been, you know, a really long time for Disneyland. Now Disney World's in kind of a different space here. And that's because the state of Florida is kind of taking a different approach to how this is all working. The governor of Florida really wants everything to reopen, and he's pushing really hard to reopen. And it was interesting because the state sent a letter to Disney and Universal and SeaWorld and other attractions in Florida and said, hey, we'd really like to encourage you to reopen to a higher capacity, and we want you to revisit your mask mandate and all the other things that you're doing, you know, because we want to increase tourism in the state. And to their credit, the state is trying to do what's in the state's best interest. I, I get that. But Disney said, we'll take it into consideration and we'll come up with something later. We'll, we'll you know, we'll answer you later. And they made it very public. And then within a week, announced that they were reducing the schedules of the parks, except for on holidays, and they were cutting out some other activities. And by the way, we're going to lay, out, lay off 28,000 people throughout the Walt Disney Company. It was kind of like a slap in the face to the state to a degree because they announced it in a way that was kind of like, yeah, we're not doing that. It's, it's kind of almost funny in a way. So the state doesn't get what they want. Disney doesn't get what they want either, honestly, because they have to figure out how to deal with uh, more ongoing, more ongoing with this entirety of the of the um, the virus spreading, in trying to protect themselves. Look, at the end of the day, they're trying to protect their bottom line and get people to uh, travel safely and have a good time. 
you know, you want the money, you want people to go in and spend, but you have to be careful how you allow people in and how they spend. It's kind of a double-edged sword. And they don't want to be pushed by the state. Look, the state of Florida and Disney World have always had this very unusual, contentious relationship. It's, it's always been a little odd. I, I summarize it like this. Every time the state, the county, the city comes back and says, hey, Disney, you need to do X, Disney says, well, we could just close our doors. And they flex their muscles in a way and say, you know, we, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to take it under advisement, but we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do what's in our own best interest, which is exactly what happened here. So 28,000 cast members throughout the country, throughout the world actually, is a pretty large number of people. It includes people in the direct customer service piece where they would be cast members who would be dealing with uh, guests. It deal, it, it's Imagineers, it's management, it's people in uh, the planning, uh, people in construction, it, it touches everything. And it's amazing to me. Disney is still negotiating with several of the unions about how to lay off people because some of the union workers will be laid off as well. Some of the actors, screen, uh, the screen, screen, not screen actors, but the uh, Actors' Equity Guild, um, some of them will be let go and have already. They've canceled some of the shows somewhat permanently. Uh, they've uh, done some things with some of the other, uh, other unions uh, where they'll probably be cutting you know, drivers and so forth as well because they just don't have the demand for it right now. And this makes it really interesting. And on the other side, I just wanted to point this out too. When the state said, hey, we want you to increase capacity, we'd like you to go back to 100%. There was no possible way Disney could go back to 100% before, say, summer of next year. And that's because they have the International Exchange Program, the, the visa program where we brought in, we, the country, brought in international workers and Disney was using them to come and work at the Epcot pavilions. And it was based on a special visa they had, but the um, visa program was ended and so they can't bring in those workers. And then you had the college program where you had a bunch of college students from around the country coming to work at Disney World, getting college credit for it, having a little fun. And it staffed a lot of your uh, people positions, especially in the frontline cast member sense. And you don't have those people in the pipeline right now. They've canceled it for the fall and for the spring. So the earliest you can conceivably get anybody in is for the summer next year, which is great. And they may, they may try to aim for that by starting up again in the spring to start to recruit people. But... That group of people between the college program kids and the people in the um, international exchange program, that was somewhere between a third and a half of all cast members. So how do you possibly reopen 100% if you don't have essentially half of your cast? What do you do? So Disney was in a position where they couldn't do that anyway. It just wasn't physically possible. I mean, they could have hired people locally, I guess, uh, to fill the positions, but that was not in their long-term interest, and it wasn't really going to work. They could hire more part-time people to come and fill in, but it leaves the it leaves a gap in there because you know you're training them and getting them up to speed and doing some things for maybe a limited involvement from the number of people that would come and actually visit the parks, which is kind of the problem here. You just you're not getting the attendance you want. Disney had made the decision that hey, we're going to let guests um, take away their annual passes and you know give it up and we'll refund their money. And we're going to hold people back on how many days they can go in reserve within the system through the, uh, the reservation system to actually get a park entrance. And they changed all of that stuff to favor the vacation club members, the people staying at the resorts and so forth over the annual pass holders. And then it turned out people weren't showing up anyway. So now they're turning it around and saying, hey, we're going to want to allow more space for pass holders. And in fact, if you canceled your annual pass, we'll let you rescind that cancellation and come back. And uh, we'll just uh, bring you back with the same dates and whatever you had before or some nuances. They're considering, though, on an exception basis, case by case, which is great. 
but kind of odd, you, it, unexpected in a way that you didn't see that coming. It was kind of weird that they came up with this and they said, hey, we're going to change our policy again. And that's the whole thing. Everything kind of uh, goes through these evolutionary steps where they keep changing their policy. Look, I've known a few people who have gone up and visited the parks over the last couple of months, and they said it, they had a great time. It was weird wearing a mask and, you know, it was kind of unusual, um, but they had a great time anyway because they left most of reality behind and went up there and had some fun. And so far, none of them have been infected, so that's great. Disney's done a great job of kind of managing, you know, their own bubble. I would, I've always called it the bubble, and they've done a good job of managing it so far. So good for them, you know, so far, no problems. But they have to be careful in the public perception, too, because they don't want to be the place that has an outbreak, because then that'll definitely affect their bottom line. So it's a very delicate balance they have to maintain. And I know some people would just love them to just go back to the way things were and be the, you know, be the place where you get away from it all. But it's not that simple. And Disney knows that, and they have to uh, kind of work around it a little bit. So it's kind of an interesting problem that they're, that they're stuck in at this point, that they don't know how to respond to it, and no one else does either. But Disney is like the largest bellwether for what everyone else does, because whatever they do kind of dictates how the state goes, and then how other uh, sort of industries that, that are theme parks or attractions or exhibits or places people visit for vacation will follow suit. Um, in fact, I was talking to somebody who works for a cruise line, not related to Disney, and was telling me that, you know, they're looking at Disney as, you know, sort of their the hallmark, right? What they are choosing to do is based on what Disney is choosing to do. I found that interesting. So whatever it becomes is kind of a funny thing. So Disney's going to do what's in their best interest. You keep hearing about things that they're planning, and that's all you get to this point. And again, the whole thing about the theme park and uh, reservation systems is, you know, they have this method for letting people in, and we don't know how many people that is. We don't know how, um, how, what, the, what the capacity is. We don't know uh, anything more than we can use the reservation system to go find a reservation if there's one available. That's all we know. And people say, you know, it's anywhere from, you know, 20%, somewhere in that range, maybe a little lower. Um, they've tweaked it a little bit because there's been a little bit more of a crowd a few, few days, especially on holidays or busy weekends. But otherwise, you know, it's been somewhere in that range. You know, what that number is, who knows? It's kind of interesting. Now, I also meant to mention that in the, uh, the announcement that they were going to lay off 28,000 cast members, Josh Damaro, who's the president of the parks, had a very heartfelt message to the cast members that were going to be affected. You know, this is not easy for them either, for the uh, executives. They took a pay cut. I'm not saying that they're, you know, they're completely, you know, out of, the, out of this um, because obviously they're, you know, it's about the bottom line of the company and they're trying to protect themselves and the company. But it was an interesting, heartfelt message where he really felt for the people, the cast members who were being laid off, because it's not easy. This is no easy decision. They kept, the, they kept many of them on for as long as they possibly could, given the economy and the way things are working for them. But it's not going the way they want it to. And uh, I found that to be really interesting, because it, it just felt sincere. Uh, when I read the message, I was like, wow, that's actually a pretty sincere message. And it just felt like he was, he was saying saying the right things. Um, it didn't feel like it was just lip service. It actually felt like this, this hurts. Um, you know, it hurts to let people go like this, especially in that number of people. It's really difficult. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, Disney takes it lightly. That's just one of those things. You kind of go, wow, it's kind of interesting how this works out. In other related Disney news, uh, you may know, I know I've talked about this on previous podcasts, that two pavilions, the Japan Pavilion and the Morocco Pavilion, are actually run by companies that are actually country-specific. So Japan is run by the Mitsukoshi Company, and uh, the Morocco Pavilion is mostly run by 
uh, a company that's based out of uh, it's actually it's actually in the royal group because um, the the king is actually involved with some of the day to day stuff not day to day specifically but sort of the the operation of the uh, Morocco Pavilion at Epcot. And so there's a specific uh, company that comes in and manages the restaurants and the entertainment and all of the things that go on there. It has and staffs the people that, uh, that work in the, um, in the stores and so forth. There are some other cast members who come in uh, and do some other work there. But generally speaking, it's the, uh, it's the people that uh, run for this company that, um, that run this company that run this, the, uh, the operations there. So during the pandemic it became difficult and um, Disney had loaned some money uh, based on the, it's, it's all based on this uh, PPP program that's out there where there was uh, loans being made to pay people and so forth. Disney was involved with that with Morocco and so forth. Then Disney uh, put a lien on the Morocco pavilion basically and said, Hey, we need, we need to be repaid for some of the stuff we loaned you and some of the things we did. And it gets complicated legally. I don't want to try and bore you with the details here. It was just really kind of interesting that they wound up closing I, all of the restaurants, I think, I want to say. Um, I know they can't close the Tangerine Cafe, but I think they also closed the restaurant Marrakesh. But they released all of their performers and all the other things. And then it turns out that the staff that worked, the management staff that worked at the pavilion, emptied out their offices and left. <laughs> so they're no longer working there. So the, the pavilion goes into a weird set of uh, state of limbo at this point. Um, I don't know what's going to happen there, but it's a, you know, again, it's complicated in a legal sense. Disney will manage to keep it open as much as they can. There are some cast members working there. Um, they may not be traditionally from Morocco or even uh, speak Arabic or whatever, but they'll continue to populate it for as long as they can and do the things that they need to do until they work out the arrangements. But this was the one interesting piece to the Disney relationship that kind of fell apart in a weird way that I really can't quite figure out how that happened. You know, how did they find themselves in this state? It's one of those kind of one-off things. You go, wait, what happened there exactly? Just kind of weird. In another piece of Disney news, uh, there was a, an interesting thing when Disney decided that they wanted to move Mulan to the streaming service, to the Disney Plus streaming service and charge $30. It seemed like a ridiculous thing to do. It's a $30 in additional to your regular subscription. Now, if you think about the $30, you go, okay, if a family of four watches it at home, you know, that's only a little over $7 a piece, right? So you could go see a movie for $10 a piece. So you might spend, you know, $40 for the, for the four people to go. So here you're seeing at home and you're spending 30. Now, whether the movie was good or bad is debatable and it's anybody's guess whether, you know, whether it was successful or whether it was whatever. It got a lot of attention, not all of it good because of where it was filmed and how it portrayed uh, the, you know, the, the people of China during this, during this time frame. But for whatever it's worth, the movie itself was fairly successful in the sense of it raked in a lot of money. I don't know what the final number was. I think I saw it at one point, but it was, you know, it was a good number that they actually brought in. And then Disney decided they're going to go ahead and start releasing it to some of the other streaming services for the same price, roughly, uh, that would then allow for them, other people to see it who don't have Disney+. Plus. And they know they're going to make a little bit of money on it that way. And then eventually in December, it'll uh, go to uh, Disney Plus as a regular part of the package. But you have a chance to see it in advance uh, if you want to and pay a little more for it, even if you don't have Disney Plus. So basically, it'll be like a rental you can stream at home. So I found that kind of interesting. They made money on it. Things went really well. Disney was happy with the results there. And then they announced like a week or two ago that all of the new releases, especially the action movies, the things in the, uh, uh, in the Marvel Universe, um, I'm, you know, all the things that they're going to put there that, uh, that were going to come out, 
they are all going to be delayed until next year sometimes. There's going to be no movies that go out to the theater this year from Disney. And then a bunch of other companies kind of said, hey, we're going to do the same thing. There's no reason to release a blockbuster film right now. We'll wait and we'll put it out next year. And then Disney started thinking about, well, what if we release these movies to streaming platforms? And then other companies started thinking about, hey, what if we release some of our blockbusters to streaming platforms? And did the same kind of a thing where we charge a premium for them so people can see them. And that just changed the industry. Yeah, just like that, the industry changed. Because all of a sudden, here's you know, the second largest chain, uh, the Regal Cinemas, that says, wait a minute, we have no movies. And if you go look at the Regal Cinemas or AMC or anybody else's movie offerings, there's a couple of current-ish movies that are out there, a couple that probably would have never gotten released, probably would have gone straight to video, basically, or straight to streaming. They got released to the theaters. There's some classic movies that they've released to theaters. Uh, you know, so I, I think I saw Star Wars Episode Five was out there, The Empire Strikes Back. I saw Singing in the Rain was showing somewhere. And some other classic films are out there in the theaters. So you can go and see a movie, but not necessarily a current movie. And I was like, wow, that's tough. And then when, uh, when the new James Bond movie went ahead and moved to uh, a spring deployment sometime, spring <laughs> deployment, uh, a springtime uh, release, they, you know, it kind of changed the movie industry. And Regal said, well, we can't afford to stay in business this way. We're going to take a more temporary, another temporary closure here. Starting in a week or so, we're just going to shut all our theaters. They have 550-ish or maybe a little under theaters around the country. And they're the second largest movie chain. And they go, we're just going to close all our theaters again for a while and wait until next year and see what happens. And in the meantime, <laughs> Disney and all of the other Companies are going, well, if we can't release them to the theater and make a lot of money, we could make a lot of money by releasing them to directly to streaming. They probably will do that. And I think you're going to see more movies come out to streaming. And I think the movie theater business is on its last legs at this point. If and when AMC decides, hey, we're going to do the same thing that Regal's doing, AMC being the largest one, that's going to be the, the moment when you realize that the whole thing is changing, that the industry is changing and uh, movie theaters don't have that same uh, push anymore. Look, my kids, they don't really care about going to see a movie. When they see a movie come out on streaming, they're excited to see it. Hey, can we watch this? And we watch it. They don't care about the new releases when they come to the theaters. Sometimes I have to push them to go see the new releases in the theaters. So, you know, if I want to see it, basically. And, you know, I'd be okay with if they just moved to streaming. Or I guess I should say six months ago, I used to push them to, to doing it. I haven't been to the movies since then, obviously, either. Um, in Florida, they just reopened recently, and they're going to close again soon, so uh, at least the Regal Cinemas. So it's kind of an interesting mix. If my kids weren't interested in it, and I assume that other people are similar in mindset, yeah, there's some movies I want to go see, and there's a thrill of going to the movies once in a while. Growing up, without streaming services, without cable TV, hey, a Saturday afternoon was spent going to the movies. That was the fun way to spend an afternoon. My friends and I would go to the movies. I don't see that anymore. I don't see any of my kids, any of their friends, anybody else going, hey, let's go see a movie. Once in a while, they just happen to randomly go see one because it's something they want to see, but that's about it. It's not about just going and enjoying yourself. It's only about going and seeing the blockbusters or something else that you really want to see. So the movie industry is about to change, and Disney kind of forced that to a large degree just by their own decisions and their own test case with Mulan. So I found that really interesting, and I just wanted to share that, that I think, you know, here we go. Disney is kind of behind it all again. So I find, you know, there's a lot of things happening and, uh, you know, really interesting stuff. Some of it is more interesting than others, obviously. But um, it's really kind of weird how Disney is, you know, kind of drawing everything together themselves. 
And it's really about what they do. I think that's really the, the critical thing here is that Disney is really pushing a lot of the entertainment business, whether it's theme parks or movies or whatever, they're pushing a lot of things to happen in a certain way. And then finally, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the um, NBA. The NBA had a very successful run in the bubble. They put together this bubble. They came up with a plan to keep players away from everyone else to keep themselves safe from the virus. And it worked out better than anybody could have anticipated. I think everybody figured there would be some little gaps or something that would happen and they might have to shut down at some point. They haven't had to. They worked out really well. Um, the NHL is the other one that did it really well because they did a bubble up in Canada. Same kind of a thing. Um, you know, so it worked out really well doing the bubble to keep people away. And terrific. You know, it worked out great. So now the NBA is ending its run. Um, they're in the NBA finals right now. And uh, they'll be done in a week or so. And they've been there for in the Disney bubble at the Coronado Springs and the wide world of sports for about three months. So I have this image in my head of when the finals are done. And this is my funny moment here. Dad joke coming. Beware. Um, when, the, uh, when the finals are over, they're going to go, hey, so-and-so, you're the finals MVP. What are you going to do now? And the person is going to look right at the camera and go, I'm getting out of Disney World because I think it's time for them to leave. Um, you know, it's kind of a funny thing just at this moment. I'm sure they're ready to go after three months in the, uh, in the bubble there. Or maybe they want to go to the, to the parks and enjoy themselves. I don't know. But anyway, I just found that kind of funny. Oh, and I should add one more thing here. Wear a mask. It's one of those things that really helps protect you, everyone around you, and kind of helps stem the spread of this virus. Look, the virus isn't going anywhere. You may think that things are opening back up and it looks better. And yeah, maybe on the surface it does, but you got to remember that it's still very much out there. And we're hearing about other countries that are seeing a resurgence and we're bound to see one too. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it works. So wear a mask and protect those around you. As I mentioned earlier, Disney is sort of the bellwether for what other companies are doing and what other industries are doing. They should also be sort of a, a bellwether for us as individuals. They're enforcing a mask policy to protect the cast members, you as guests, all of us. And I think we should go along with that and do the same things that they're doing. So that's my commercial message. Wear a mask. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. And finally, for today's One Little Spark, I wanted you to think about social justice as it relates to climate change and climate justice. There's a kind of an interesting thing here, and I was reading something kind of compelling on uh, Ben and Jerry's website. Ben and Jerry really are um, interesting guys who are into the whole social justice and understanding what the world is all about. And I, I found it kind of interesting that they had this thought, and they were talking about how um, social justice in the world and uh, the whole idea of climate change, climate justice kind of come together. And they, they provided some examples and some thoughts about how people are always impacted by these things. And it tends to be people who are of a lower socioeconomic status who have the biggest impacts from some of these changes. So they use the, um, uh, the fact that when Hurricane Sandy hit up in New York and New Jersey, um, the people who were minorities, 33% uh, of the residents who lived in the storm surge area were in government-assisted housing. Um, so they had a long, difficult recovery process. They talk about the Solomon Islands, uh, it's in the Pacific, um, 
there was uh, there have been a lot of the islands that have been lost to the sea. That the sea the sea level change has caused the islands to disappear to a large degree. Um, and there, the Solomon Islands, the people that live there, are in, uh, mostly indigenous or people who have lived there for many generations. And uh, when you think about all the things that have gone on there, uh, a lot of climate change affects them, and they've lost some of their their usable land, arable land, because of what happens there. Uh, what happened there along the way. When Hurricane uh, Katrina hit the Gulf Coast in 2005, um, there was a lot of poor people who lived in the uh, parishes where most of the uh, flooding occurred, and then uh, people were living in, in the Superdome for some period of time after that. Um, you know, this is kind of an interesting little mix of, of things that came together here. Um, and you have to understand that the reason people were living in those low-lying low areas and the places that were affected by flooding was because of the after-effects many years later, hundreds of years later, actually, of slavery. That they were, um, they were segregated into low-income housing and haven't been able to escape, if you will, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, haven't been able to escape to anywhere else at this point. Um, so I found, you know, I just found that kind of interesting, and those were just a couple of examples that they threw out there. And I would also throw out there that uh, when you think about, uh, there was some years ago, there was something called the Arab Spring, where a bunch of uh, uh, nations rose up because they needed to, uh, uh, they were trying to have a renaissance and uh, throw out the old governments. And it's not necessarily because they were having a renaissance of a sort of like a revolution. This was because some of their arable farmland had now been flooded or had been, uh, the water had been in infected by salt water and they didn't have the ability to continue doing the things that they had been doing in the past. So they were protesting essentially the fact that, you know, that they were low-income farmers who didn't have the ability to farm anymore. So this was more about an uprising on the social sense than it was about a political scene, even though it was kind of mi misrepresented in the news to a large degree. Um, so I just you wanted to point that out and get you to think a little bit differently about the idea of you know social you know social impacts have bigger impacts than just you know the social issues that we talk about specifically. There's broader impacts and there's connections to climate change and there's connections to other things. The fact that um, you know there was this uh, the Flint uh, Flint Michigan water problem. It's a very complicated and convoluted problem that had a lot of layers to it. But at the end of the day, who was affected? It was minorities and people living in um, some government-assisted housing, low-income housing, and so forth, who to this day still don't have a clean water supply because no one takes, pays att enough attention to it to actually fix the problem. And that's just sad. And it's, it's sad from many perspectives, and I just want you to stop and think about it. And there's plenty of research available out there. Just go and read about a couple of these things and you know, kind of take a moment to understand how, the, how other things affect you know, social status as well. It's, you know, it's not just about um, you know, the, the police kneeling on someone's neck. That's a horrible thing, and it should never happen anyway, but it's bigger than that. The, the issues go much deeper, and I just want you to take a moment and just think about that and just consider it a little bit. And that's it. Very simple and straightforward. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Um, that's my one little spark for today. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, 
I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.